Hello and welcome to Talking Shop. I'm Alex Goy, journalist, Morgan owner and your host, here to take you through some of Morgan's key moments, key people and biggest fans to get you under the skin of one of the world's most unique car manufacturers. Today's guest is Sam Fain, who you may know as Seen Through Glass YouTuber extraordinaire. We had a good chat about how we got into YouTube, what being a YouTuber really is, the future of his industry. YouTubing itself is a huge industry. We talked about what he gets up to, what he's been driving, and his most recent adventure around the world. Without further ado, here's Sam. Sam, welcome to Talking Shop, a podcast from Morgan about Morgans-ish. How are you today? I'm good. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I'm alive, which I think is always the most positive thing to say at this this time of life. Um, uh, and yeah, somehow keeping sane and, and keeping healthy and surviving. How about yourself? I, I'm, I'm good. Much like you, I'm, I'm grateful I'm alive. And I'm also incredibly grateful that every cough I have is wet. Yeah. <laughs> I've it's, never been more now, grateful for a wet But do you cough. know how to tell the difference? Because I am naturally a sort of paranoid human being and I'm also a hypochondriac. So it, even if I sort of chewed on sawdust, I would then think I've got coronavirus. So how do you tell between a wet and a dry cough? I'm just the general dampness of the cough, <laughs> I imagine. I don't really know. I there mean, you I've, go. I've, I'd go I've, and have I've, a test I've, if I were you. Well, the, the the problem is uh, early on during during the the pandemic, early on in lockdown, I had like a really bad cold and I didn't sleep for a couple of nights. Not because the the illness was keeping me up, but because I was like, I've I've, I've got it. I'm going to die. Yeah. I'm going to die. <laughs> That's it. These are my last days. What should I do? This is how I end. I've got like mm. seven days and oh, no. I feel awful. But then I was fine. Uh, so not got it yet. Anyway, let's talk about <laughs> you and cars. So. For for the Morgan audience who may not be familiar with what our YouTuber is, who are you and what do you do? Well, I'll be honest, I'm not really sure what a YouTuber is either. And I've been one for about five years now. But um, essentially, I, I would say we are a new form of media. So instead of just being able to consume car content uh, on TV or in magazines or or going to your local Tesco's car park, um, you can now log on to YouTube.com and find a, a huge uh, bevy of, of car content um, ranging from, you know, Jeremy Clarkson doing his sort of usual thing to in-depth reviews of how you can take a Lamborghini engine in and out to the silly stuff that I tend to do, which is kind of a bad rip-off of old Top Gear. So think uh, road trips, uh, challenges, adventures uh, in nice, shiny, expensive cars. That's kind of, I guess, how I would summarize my channel. Um, and yeah, as I say, I've been doing it for about four or five years now. I, I tend to put out a sort of w one video a week, something like that. And it's my life with cars. I mean that that sounds like a pretty good way to to make a living. So where 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 do you fit in the kind of grand pantheon of YouTubers? Because you know there's there's guys like you and there's Supercars of London. There's of course Shmi who's just clocked ten years. Shmi, Shmi one fifty uh, who's sort of the proto automotive YouTuber. So where <laughs> so where do you true. fit into this grand chasm of of people? Uh, unfortunately, very low down. I'm the sort of regional uh, I don't know what Rover specialist magazine in the in the pantheons of auto expresses. Um, but no, yes, uh, 
YouTube's weird because it's still relatively a new, you know, industry to be a YouTuber. Um, the growth has been so, so rapid over the last few years. But the likes of Shmi150, who started their channels 10 years ago, uh, have amassed huge numbers because of the amount of time that they've been doing it and the expertise that they've gained whilst doing it. Uh, so I have something which uh, equates to uh, around half a million subscribers. Um, I never, it's so hard. I don't really know what that means. I use it as a metric to judge myself and I think you know manufacturers and brands use it as a metric to judge my success but when I actually sit down and go 500,000 people I mean that's a ridiculous number of people that you know chose to you know subscribe so that they, when I upload a video they get told I've uploaded a video that's crazy that's like a Sheffield that's yeah. a Sheffield <laughs> the population is following I me around yeah, I, I I don't honestly know if if that is how many people live in Sheffield, but the numbers, the size of it seems to seems to make sense. But that's like that's a city's worth of people, like a decent city as well, following you, following everything you do, absorbing that. Like, as as an individual, how does that feel? Because I've I've you know I've I've done similar stuff, and I have like a tiny fraction of what you have, and I still get really weirded out when people stop me in the street and go, "Hey, man, I know you." Because it's like I'm just a bloke on the internet, but you have, you know, a vast following. So how does that how does that sit with you? I, it is it is hard to um, to come to terms with, really, because I think you know, obviously, I'm sitting here and I'm creating content for an audience. I'm not just doing it for myself. So I'm fully aware that there are people out there who I hope will watch and enjoy what I'm creating. Uh, so when I go to a car meet of which where I sort of know some of my audience may be, it kind of, you know, I, I would almost I would almost feel bad if someone didn't say, hey, I watched one of your videos. <laughs> That's such an awful thing to say, isn't it? But I, I guess it's sort of... I, 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 I entirely agree. Yeah, <laughs> because you kind of want, you know, that's who I'm targeting. And so if they're not watching my videos, then I'm really doing something wrong. But when you're sort of in Tesco's or at the supermarket or at the cinema, when we used to be able to go to those places and someone would come up to you, that is still very hard to, to sort of comprehend and quite sort of shocking and unnerving. And I always am a bit awkward. I try and be as friendly as possible because it's amazing that they want to come and say hi. I'm a bit like, that's, you know, that's such a weird thing that you want to come and say hello to me, but therefore I'm going to be as nice as I possibly can be. Um, but the bit that I struggle with more so than that is actually the kind of the interest in my life in general. Do you know what I mean? So fair enough. If you've watched a video that I've made, you've enjoyed it and you want to come and talk to me about it. Great. We're all petrol heads. Let's just talk about cars. But when you're like, where do you live? What clothes do you wear? What's your girlfriend's name? I'm just a bit like, no, like, I, like that's, I, no. mm, you know, I, it's and that's the problem with social media, I guess it's made all of us too accessible, too open. And so now people sort of thrive off that access and wanting to see and hear and know more about the individuals they follow. Yeah, I, mean, it, I, I imagine, yeah, it does people coming up to you go, knowing the minutiae of bits of your life. That said, I'm going to ask you about the minutiae <laughs> of the bits of your life. So, Please. you know, so social media, podcasts, all that kind of thing. It does, it does make you uh, accessible. Um, so YouTube, you know, it, it is now your life. It is your job. Uh, one of many jobs, I, I imagine. But uh, how did you get into it? Why did you start it? Like, where did you come from? So, yes, uh, my story a little bit different to many other YouTubers, uh, only in the sense that, that I, I was working for about eight years uh, on a sort of career path that I was enjoying a lot uh, th that I then 
completely took a turn from and ended up yeah, making videos online. Um, but I left school, didn't go to university, was desperate to be in the world of music. I just didn't really know how. I didn't have the talent to be in a band. I wasn't a singer, wasn't a very good guitarist. Ended up working in a recording studio, then flopped to a you know music label. And it just it wasn't working out for me. Um, and so I eventually found myself in the, in the world of PR for sort of, you know, big entertainment events. So if there was a red carpet premiere in London, I'd be the guy going, BBC News, do you want to speak to Leonardo DiCaprio? Um, and, and it was great. I loved it. It was an amazing job. And I did it for, uh, well, as I say, I worked in the music industry for about three years. And then I did this PR job for about five. And I thought, right, this is my moment. I'm going to go out and start a PR consultancy. I'm going to make lots of money and I'm going to be really successful. And about three months in, I was like, well, I'm not really doing very much, am I? <laughs> I don't think this is going very well. Um, I basically signed one client and I was pretty unsatisfied with my, my work and my life. And so I went to my dad for some advice. He's been self-employed his whole life. And I said, look, I don't think this self-employed life's for me. I want to go back and get a nine to five. And he said, no, look, find a hobby. Find a hobby. And when you're not busy, do the hobby. And when your clients come along, just put the hobby on the side. And I've always been a nerd for making videos. I've always loved making videos. And I was aware of YouTube because lots of my clients were employing YouTubers to promote their products. So we would pay YouTubers to come down to film premieres or they would come to screenings and then talk about the movie they watched. And I was like, oh, you know what? I could probably make some videos. And if I earn like a hundred quid a month, like winning, I get to top up my car with fuel and maybe go to a Formula One race. And that was literally the aim. And then a year and a half later, I folded the PR consultancy and went full time. I mean that's yeah that's 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 pretty mega. I I, I made my hobby my job. Yeah, <laughs> pretty. I mean, like not bad, right? I, but but I don't know about you because obviously I didn't. Did you actually did you train as a journalist or did you fall into it? No, uh, I uh, I went to university off of a drunken whim and did a PR <laughs> degree. Ah, um, amazing. Th there's a much much longer story, but yeah, the the long story short is I got drunk and then decided I wanted to do a degree, but not being remotely academic. Uh, I went to Leeds Met. Uh, I rang them up and said, hi, I'm just short of the line, but can I come and do PR with German? And they went, yes, we've just lowered the bar. Oh, uh, fantastic. So 10 days later, I was in Leeds and then decided after about three months that I really didn't like PR um, and that I wanted to be a journalist. And then uh, I started doing cars. And then I just sort of... Then, then uh, much like the generation of today, the post-COVID generation, uh, left university into a recession. Oh, fantastic. What great Which timing on great. your side. Yeah. 2008 was brilliant. <laughs> oh, um, my God. And then, yeah, so, yeah, no, no, no formal training, just starting it out. But it's one of those things where you, you know, I hope you've ended up in a job that you like and you're, you're happy with, I hope. Um, but I, I definitely, I have, but whilst it has been my hobby that's become my job, I definitely didn't set out being like, what's my goal in life? I want to be in and around cars and I want to drive cars. I've ended up in this kind of amazing job and uh, now I look at it and I go, actually, this is what I should have always been doing. But when I was working in PR, when I started it as a hobby, it really was just that. It was just a way that I liked making videos. I had access to cars because I lived in a certain part of London and I had some friends with some nice cars. So it, you know... I didn't think this is what I wanted to do, but I've ended up doing it and I'm very happy. So and that, 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 that is truly, truly excellent. Um, so what have you let, talk, talk to us about the journey? So how did you start? Because you started off with what an F type R or is it an alpha four C I've, I've, 
Forget. You, you forget. No, uh, this is the problem with YouTubers, uh, or at least supercar YouTubers, is we tend to change our cars more than we change our underwear. Um, I actually started the channel with an Audi TTS. Um, nice. Which, had no credibility online so i very quickly uh, was going to change that but i actually was planning on changing it anyway and yes moved into an alfa romeo 4c and that's kind of what kick-started the channel because at that point no one was buying a 4c i mean i don't think anyone bought a 4c ever but at that I, point, I, I, I don't think yeah. they are even today <laughs> no exactly so but it's one of those cars that i think people are intrigued by they don't actually want to go and buy, but they think, oh, maybe one day I would. And so they want to watch lots of content on it. And so I kind of lucked into this situation where people were intrigued by the car and therefore would watch my content to be like, I wonder what, like, is this guy an idiot or is he just bought like the best car you can buy for 50 grand? Turned out that I was an idiot, but uh, that's another story for another time. <laughs> that's that's a pub conversation. Sam. That's a pub conversation. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, so, so the kind of channel I would say launched with the Alpha 4C, even though I did upload uh, for about three months with the TTS. Um, and then since then, I, it kind of shocks me when I run through the other cars that I've owned or have appeared as STG cars on the channel. You're right, Jaguar F-Type, McLaren 540C, Ferrari 360, 718 Cayman S, Porsche, 911 Carrera T, Porsche. I mean, it, it gets a bit too much, if I'm honest. Um, but thank God for the world of financing. <laughs> ah, yes. Actually, quite, quite bizarre. I, I spotted your 540C a couple of times around Southwark. But I was in uh, I was in Sainsbury's uh, on Nine Elms in okay. London. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's, that's yeah, quite yeah. close to me. And uh, I had I had a, an Elise at the time, and I parked it up. And one of the, the trolley guys came up and said, "Oh, do you mind if I take a picture?" He was like, "Yeah, yeah, feel free." <laughs> and it's this bright yellow Lotus, Philly boots, mate. Uh, and he went, "Yeah, there was another supercar in here." I was like, "Okay." Mm -hmm. And he showed me your car, and I was like, "I know that guy." <laughs> amazing, amazing. Because yeah. they they get they they do they they get around like especially when you have a channel of your own, you your cars are known and noticed they're they're characters on the channel i mean you know i think uh, maybe less so today but but three or two or three years ago maybe three or four years ago when supercar youtubing was really booming uh, and was getting a lot of interest and a lot of excitement around it the the cars were characters because we would document our journey with these cars um you know from that sort of moment of shopping around trying to buy one picking it up the first drive taking it on a road trip all these elements and i think people enjoyed that escapism living life vicariously through us and for sure you know the mclaren for example that was my first supercar and i was definitely not rich enough or in a position to be able to afford it but somehow some financing you know sort of wizardry told me that i could um and and so it was quite amazing you know, i think people kind of wanted to follow that journey um nowadays it's been done so many times i don't think people get the same kick out of it um, but but back then in the early days, you know, it was so important what car you had, what you did with it, um, and people, yeah, people really bought into that. So you're so well. You see, the, the gamers has moved on from look at my shiny new car and look at how great it is. You've owned loads of them. Um, so what? But on the side of that, on the other side of that, you end up you've ended up sorry doing a lot of really cool stuff like you've driven a formula one <laughs> i mean that's not just cool stuff i mean that was like lifelong ambition i mean i can't when when i sit back and think of the opportunities that that being a youtuber have have given me that's when i really am blown away because uh, of course, it's afforded me a, a, a lifestyle that maybe the PR consultancy wouldn't have. Who knows? Maybe I was going to go on to be a huge success. We'll never, we'll never know. Um, but fundamentally, it's the opportunities. And, and at heart, I'm a motorsport, but mainly Formula One obsessive. Like that is 
realistically been my lifelong goal and obsession. So I tried karting, tried to do the whole racing thing, clearly wasn't good enough or rich enough. Um, so abandoned that when I was about 13 or 14. Um, and so kind of somewhere in the back of my head, when YouTube started to pick up, I thought, you know, maybe this is what's going to actually eventually lead me to getting involved with F1 because I tried in so many ways. I tried to do the PR thing. I tried uh, music. I was like, maybe I could just rewrite the new theme tune for F1. You know, at any angle I was trying to get involved. And then little did I know it would be this YouTube career that got me the closest. And yes, uh, two years ago, drove a 2012 uh, Renault, or at the time, Lotus Formula One car. So it was a Kimi Raikkonen car, uh, the same chassis that he won Abu Dhabi in, um, pretty nuts, around Paul Ricard for three laps. And on the first lap, I stalled it. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. You're, you're in your dream car. Well, the thing, the, the thing is, as, as, I'm, as I'm sure you appreciate, like driving anything massively expensive, especially something like a Formula One car, you end up thinking... Don't stall it, don't stall it, don't stall it, don't stall it, don't break it, don't break it, don't break it, don't break it, don't stall it, don't stall it. Oh, God. And then you either curb it or you stall it. Literally. And then you have to call somebody and say, help me. Hi, I'm really sorry. But as so as as a lifelong Formula One fan, what what was that like? Did you get to do full throttle? Like, are you are you a helmsman? Do you do the big skids? Are you into that? Or are you just are you just a normal person who has opinions? I've always. Oh, yeah. No, I've always been told that I'm a very smooth driver. And I think because of because of the uh, the racing past, to me sliding was losing time, and so I I was conditioned uh, early on to always yeah kind of be gentle and smooth with the car, and that's probably gone on into later life and also i'm quite a safe driver like yes i will try and get the car moving around and have a bit of fun if it's a really empty road like no one's been seen or a closed circuit something like that but most of the time i drive well within my limits because uh, i know what can happen when when you don't um but fundamentally i'm also not trained you know i'm definitely not a trained journalist and apart from racing when i was young i've done very limited uh, you know sort of uh, driver training since then so uh, i wouldn't want to try and assume I had abilities that I don't um, but the F1 experience was kind of different because it definitely reawakened some of that kind of inner racer within me and I, I definitely became one of those real douchebags like you know, like took themselves a bit too seriously on the day and they in the morning they put you in a little Formula 4 single seater for sort of practice and I got so intense I was like you had the lap times on your steering wheel and I was like I will be on pole there was no pole I mean you went out one car at a time so I don't know what I was going on about but um, I really thought that this was my shot that they were going to see me as this like talent that had been missed and they were going to sign me so I was going a bit too hardcore um, but the time it came around to the actual Formula One car I think the nerves got the better of me because it's such a such an insane experience, but but one that emotionally I'd been building up to all of my life, kind of subconsciously. Uh, and there's a few things that you have to be aware of. <clears throat> Before you're actually allowed to drive the car, they do a few tests with you. Uh, and one of the sort of hardest tests is actually the brake pedal. Uh, for anyone who's never been in a race car, uh, it tends to be that brake pedals, brake pedals in a race car uh, is like pushing against a brick wall. Um, you know, they have huge amounts of, uh, uh, what do you call it, feedback? Not feedback. Uh, anyway, pressure that you have to apply to get the brakes working. And in a Formula One car, the guy said, push on the brake pedal. And I was like, oh, it's not moving. He goes, no, no, no that's the whole point. Push harder. To the point, I'm pushing so hard, I can't really breathe. And he goes, okay, that's 70% brake pressure. That's the minimum you need to achieve around every corner. And I'm like, oh, oh no, I can't do that. And he's like, no, you'll be fine. So as I go out onto the track, uh, unbelievably, the Formula One car is a lot more 
stable than the Formula 4 car. The mechanical grip is so much higher that it just actually feels a bit easier to drive. So I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm already feeling confident. And the first straight comes up and I think, screw it. I'm never having this chance again. I'm just going to pin it. So off I went and absolutely nuts. I mean, it's like a rocket just being strapped to your back and it never stops. Think of the fastest supercar you've ever been in. The Formula 1 car is faster and more impressive. Um, so that was pretty mind-blowing. Uh, then I get to the fast right-hander that I'm supposed to be taking flat and I absolutely poop myself. So I immediately get out of it, come down a couple of gears and just cruise around the corner, which I'm sad about because I wanted to experience aero and I didn't. But then going down the main straight, I just hear these voices from people, use 70% of the brakes. So <laughs> I slam the brake pedal as hard as I possibly can. My head flies forward into the cockpit. I basically can't see. I can't lift my head because of the G-forces. I'm like, Aah. finally, I sort of turn into a corner. And next thing you know, I'm hurtling down the next straight. So it was mind-blowing and like nothing I've never, ever experienced before. Um, lived up to every expectation, but fundamentally, I was not good enough or prepared to get the most out of it. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't think when someone says, we're going to give you three laps in a Formula One car, no one's going to go in and be like, yes, I know exactly what to do with this. this is... <laughs> Can you imagine? I'm taking the right-hander at 160 flat. <laughs> look at look at me, I'm brilliant. I mean, it does, it's a, hold my beer, watch this. Like. Yeah. Never, yeah. never play that game. So uh, let's talk about your, your most recent big project. You drove around the world. What? <laughs> yes, I slightly regretted doing it. No, I'm joking. Um, so yeah, last year, 2019, I embarked on this kind of crazy project to, to travel around the world, trying to discover what car culture is like in different countries. And it was kind of born out of this fact that YouTube gives you these amazing insights into your channel. And one day I was kind of collecting a lot of uh, you know, analytics for, for one of the clients I was working with. And it told me that Seen Through Glass, my channel, was viewed in 130 countries around the world. And I went, that can't be right. Like, no way. Looking into it, I suddenly thought, what the, like, who's watching Seen Through Glass in Iceland? Or, you know, or South Africa? Like, who are these people? And so I thought, well, let's go and find out. Um, and so, yeah, took a 12-month trip, visited 37 countries in the end, I think drove over 30,000 kilometers uh, across Australia, throughout Europe, across America, and then flew in and out of a load of other countries that we couldn't get the car to because it was you know, either too expensive or logistically impossible. Um, and yeah, amazing. Um, an unbelievable adventure. Exhausting. <laughs> um, but I got to see a lot. So uh, to, uh, to talk us through some of the highlights of it, because I, I was watching the, the Australia one this morning. You got to drive a Lexus LFA. What? I mean, that was a day. I'm literally... Uh, the thing was, the whole trip relied on my audience. Because I was going to places where I didn't have any contacts or, or really know anyone. I basically said to my audience, if I'm coming to your city or your country, get in touch and let me know what I should be doing. And the emails ranged from like, I'll go and meet my aunt. She's got a great sandwich shop. To come and film my Ferrari LaFerrari. Um, and one of the emails, yeah, so I can see Alex is now really looking upset. But anyway. Um, what? Just, one, what? One, Have one my of, car, man from the internet. <laughs> just go. One of the emails was from a very lovely gentleman from Lexus Australia saying, hi, Sam, like no idea if this is of interest, but we've got an LFA sitting here. No one's using it. You know, do you want to take it out for a drive? And I was like, 
Yes. Um, and it was literally that. We spent an entire day with a, an LFA and an LC500 around the Yarra Valley, the sort of iconic wine region just outside Melbourne, Australia, just thrashing the thing. I mean, it was, it was pinch yourself kind of moment. Um, and that happened throughout the year. I drove a 918 Spider in New Zealand on a kind of completely abandoned road just after stepping out of a 911R. So that was a pretty amazing back-to-back test drive. Um, Pagani Huayra, Bugatti Chiron Sport, as I mentioned, Ferrari LaFerrari. Um, also some amazing classics. And Austin Healy 100M, that thing blew my mind. Like old 50s Austin was great. Um, I There's too many things to recount. Um, uh, but yeah, it, it was an amazing, amazing adventure. I mean, part of your part of your your mission for this the, the the series and part of your reason for doing it was to capture the car culture in different bits of the world because of course you're well versed in UK car culture you know how it works here because you're part of it. But how like what kind of differences did you see all over the world? Like what how how vastly different is it from one place to another, or is it all still kind of the same baseline thing? The most disappointing thing, and I think this is largely to blame with how I've run the channel over the years, is that supercars are everywhere. And that was you know, what I didn't want to discover. I wanted to find tuk-tuks with V12 engines in India. And I wanted to find you know, utes in Australia with 3,000 horsepower. You know, I just wanted to see different kind of stuff. But because I think my audience know that I tend to film supercars, and the fact that nowadays the world's a rich enough place that supercars are just everywhere. Those were the kind of opportunities I kept getting offered. Um, however, uh, in general, I would say that uh, Australians were the most passionate. They love, you know, their cars. They don't drive them fast. I'm just going to come out and say, it. I love you, Australia. And they're, I think you're you're scared of the kangaroos. I get it. They're, they're not allowed to drive fast either. Like, well, there you go. I was I was there earlier this year, and I was I was out with out in a in a, in a bunch in a bunch of fast cars. And we were basically told if you get caught, the fines are massive, and the police aren't very friendly about it. And like yep. that's it. And they were telling us about how they, they they've got a point system on their licenses over there, but sometimes they have double point seasons, so you can lose your license for doing ten over and getting caught by two cameras on Christmas Eve or something like that. It's like, how? oh yeah, it's like outrageous. And somebody told me they've literally just been brainwashed into driving slowly. So you see these amazing cars and these guys who are so passionate and knowledgeable and enthusiastic and they go, let's go for a drive. And then you're just cruising at 35 miles an hour, which maybe is the safest way to do it. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we shouldn't be frowning. But but coming from Europe, I was a bit like, ah, <laughs> this is okay. Um, and then you, fl- you flip to America where I would argue that West Coast America has one of the best car cultures in the world because of its inclusivity. You know, I think if anything could be said for the UK is in a negative sense is that sometimes we can be a bit too exclusive with our sort of, you know, our car meets and our passions. There'll be the Ferrari guys and then there'll be the supercar guys and then the Ford guys. And, and so in America, you could have a Morgan Plus 4 parked next to a P1 GTR and the two guys would be just chatting like best friends, like both of them asking each other about the cars so intensely whilst, you know, sometimes in the UK we can turn our noses up at some things and and, and that's the only negative I would say. But yeah, in general, the, sh- the sad part was nowadays supercars are everywhere and, and that takes away some of the shine from maybe a little bit of uniqueness and, and creativity when it comes to, to our automobiles. But supercars are still really fun. 
oh my God, don't get me wrong. Hey, you heard me mention driving an LFA and a 918 Spider. I didn't turn down any of those opportunities. Okay. And, you know, and it was great content. And, and if I look back, fundamentally, that's still what gets big views online. People fundamentally don't care um, about, you know, some of the more niche stuff. But one of my favorite moments, which I'm so glad went down well, was I was in Kansas in the middle of nowhere in America, tiny little town. And this incredible collector seemed to live there. And he's, he's a sort of entrepreneur, amassed a big collection. And he had a replica Porsche 917, the you know, iconic Le Mans car. And he goes, hey, man, like, why don't we just take it out for dinner? I'm like, what? He's like, yeah. So there we are driving through the streets of small town America. Like, like it looks like a little city in, in a 917 Le Mans race car. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff I'm like, nowhere else but America could this be happening right now. Um, and that was cool to experience kind of stuff like that for sure. So you, you had this uh, 911 Carrera T, 991.2 911 Carrera T. Correct. How, like, how, how did it hold up? Because, you know, Porsche are un- undeniably reliable motor cars. But, you know, you did big distance. It, it travelled independent of you hundreds of thousands of miles. <laughs> yeah, quite outrageously. Um, uh, yeah, it, it unsurprisingly did a fantastic job. I mean, it, it literally didn't put a foot wrong. And that was kind of a large reason as to why I ended up choosing that car, because I kind of knew it would get us around the world uh, without blinking and and we really did abuse it i mean i i I treated it like a rental uh you know we would take it off road we would take it on track we would uh, leave it in airport car parks for weeks at a time you know i would let other people drive it it just it got used and abused and it never put a foot wrong and it was never uh, incapable you know if we were chasing a ferrari on a mountain road it was fine if we were you know having a go around the red bull track in austria it was fine as I say, if we were driving across the desert in Australia, it was fine. And that would be the one negative, I would say, is it was just fine. <laughs> like, as great as it was, um, there were a few t- I'm a bit of an idiot. I'm still 15 inside, even though my passport says I'm a different age. Uh, and so I like cars that are really silly and they want to kill you. And then maybe they don't work and they're uncomfortable and all these kind of little things. Uh, and the Porsche was just a bit too good at being good. Um, mm. So I've now taken it to Litchfield and given it 500 horsepower. <laughs> Excellent! You, you've 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 gone for the, the full Litchfield tuning thing. Have you gone for the the, the springs and the and the everything? I haven't done the... that yet. They're desperate for me to go back and do the full whack, but I'm still kind of getting used to the quite significant power upgrade. So we'll we'll see if I feel like I need the rest. So you drove it around the world and went, you know what? I need more power. I didn't get around the world fast enough. Literally that. Um. Let's take it back a little bit. So what, what's what's your experience with Morgan, considering we're on the Morgan podcast? Talk, talk to us about it. Oh, my God. So I think, as I touched on a little bit before, is I do like wacky cars is probably a, a harsh way to describe them. But I like cars with character, with personality that aren't obvious. And obviously, in today's modern age, I feel like cars are getting a little bit too synthesized. So I'm always seeking out to have a go in something that's a, it's a bit out there. And I think... My earliest memories would have been from the sort of cross-eyed Morgans, you know, for like, you know. Uh, the, 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 the Series 1 Aero 8. Yes, exactly. Um, probably from a Top Gear episode or something, <laughs> something along those lines. Uh, was probably like my kind of first, oh, that looks cool. And then living in central London, I'd see a few floating around. But I'd never had a go in one till I was invited up to the factory maybe three or so years ago. And I borrowed a Roadster with the V6 in it. And uh, yeah, no, that was that was amazing because firstly, I definitely I definitely m- didn't understand how Morgans were made. 
and and having that tour around the factory uh, when I went to pick up the the roadster, I was just like, this is cool. This is immediately so cool because the, to see the people working, to see the way that the cars are put together, to smell the wood, um, I was like, this is already going to be something that I love before I've even got in the car. And I remember having the whole kind of briefing about the car, where all the buttons were and how things worked. And I had the roof down, obviously, it being a roadster, uh, and set off on my merry way to kind of film my introductory drive. And as I'm hurtling along the road, the heavens opened. And there I am, pulled over in the middle of God knows where, trying to remember all the information about how to put the roof up and down, being like, oh my God. Um, but kind of laughing and kind of loving it at the same time. Uh, and it set up a, a great weekend. I, it was must have been, well, it was cold. So it was either November or February, but um, it was a cold time of year. Uh, but I still managed to convince my girlfriend that we were going to drive to Cambridge or no, Canterbury uh, for, for the weekend. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cambridge, Canterbury is quite a big distance from London. Yes, it was a, a significant distance. And we had, I got a blanket and there was the heater was on and I, I had the music. And I, you know what? Actually, I loved it. I loved every second. Uh, but we got some strange looks. Um, but it was just one of those experiences where I was like, you know what? This is, uh, this is unique. This has been fun. I feel cooler than I am driving the car. Uh, I, I feel like I've become more of a gentleman. Uh, and, and I want one. Um, but I obviously have to hand it back because uh, doing the job we do, uh, we only ever get loaned these cars for, for a few days. But then after, I did get the chance to drive an Aero 8, though, for a very brief time. I was attending, I think, one of the Autosport, Motorsport Awards, something like that. And I was lent a car in London. And going from the Roadster to the Aero, I was like, oh, I think this is the one I want. Because obviously I had this, like, burbling power. And I was like, oh, this is just so cool. And driving something like that around London, it was in, like, a stunning dark blue color, orange interior. Um, I was like, this is, this is the one. There's something about the cars, though, that when you're in them and you're driving them and it's nice weather and good road, all this stuff like that, it just all comes together. And and I saw Matt did release his video, I think, of the, the Plus 4 One take the other day. And, and he kind of summed it up where it's, it's a driving experience like no other. And I think that's so rare in these days where everything is kind of blending into each other, you know, from a Ferrari 488 into a McLaren 720S. But fundamentally, they all start to feel the same. Um, and that's across the board if it's a, you know, Golf GTI or Mercedes A-Class. But anyway, that's that's kind of what, what I get a kick out of is those cars that feel a bit different, which, you know, every Morgan I've experienced definitely feels different. <laughs> yes, de different, definitely different. The looks you get, the, the experiences you have, they're always, you always make friends in them. Whereas, yes. you know, I've driven convertible Ferraris through the middle of town and people have waved at me with, with some signals in their hands. <laughs> Whereas, you know, I had a uh, Hanero Coupe and, you know, I've had cabbies going, oh, coolest man in town. I'd get in my three-wheeler and people let you out of junctions and they're nice and they ask what it is. I'm like, what is that? Like, oh, and you go, it's a clatter over the clattering motor. It's a Morgan. Yeah. <laughs> no, what? Yeah, no, no, what? Amazing. Yeah, it's a Morgan. Look it up on the... <laughs> Off you go. <laughs> Uh, you and I were supposed to be uh, last month in Barcelona to drive the new Plus Four. Oh, yes, we were. That would have been just glorious, wouldn't it? It would have been rather nice, but sadly, yeah. the that world is, is on fire. Um, what, what I'm, what I'm keen, keen to, to, to learn from you, seeing as you are, you know, you're, you know how the YouTube side of things work, you know how... I, it's 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 rude to say less traditional media but you know the kind of path i'm going down like the not newspapers the not printed on dead trees media is going um you, know, you talk about how uh the, the morgan experience is vastly different how do you see 
it moving forward? How, how, how do you see Morgan kind of integrating f- further on? Well, I, I think the, there's an overall question, isn't there, for cars and where they fit in our future. You know, autonomy and, and electricity and all these different sort of elements. And people even saying that maybe we're not going to own cars in the future. We're just going to sort of share them and things like that. But no matter what changes in the automotive industry, I don't think petrol heads are going anywhere. Okay, you could say that maybe the generation, I don't know what they're called, the, the youth of today. The is youth, it X? Uh, no, they are Generation Z. Generation Z. X is the people who were teenagers in the 90s. Ah, let's move on and from then, them then. You, you, <laughs> you, you and I are millennials, and then it's there Generation Z. Okay, um, so poor old Generation Z, uh, who've had electric scooters to get them around uh, for all of their lives. Um, you know, people, I think, often misconceive that none of them care about cars and, and you know, aren't interested in cars, but... I would tell anyone who thinks that to go down to Sloan Street on a Saturday night in the summer to see the hundreds, and I'm not joking, hundreds of kids out there just trying to get a glimpse of a supercar, let alone sort of, you know, drive one or be in one. So for us petrol heads, I think cars like a Morgan or cars that represent a true driving experience, whether that's a new one or reminiscing of what an old driving experience used to be like, I think will really flourish because... Where else are we going to be able to get those kind of goods rather than having to go back and buying some old car that maybe can't be looked after or maintained anymore um, because maybe the expertise aren't there? If Morgan somehow managed to keep building new old cars, as Matt Farrow likes to say, that um, you know, I, I think that that's great. It excites me because I know that there's people out there still creating the kind of cars that I'm going to want to go out and drive and have a go in. But you know, the question is, I look at a Ferrari F8 Tributo and think, God, that looks bland and boring compared to the Ferraris I loved. But maybe a 12-year-old looks at the F8 Tributo and goes, that's the best Ferrari ever made. So, you know, it's all relative. Maybe we love Morgans because they represent a simpler time. But I do think, you know, as the world moves forward, people who want to drive will need cars like this. Um, so I, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for the future. Um, but it's, you know, it's a it's a mixture of an education process and a bit of wait and see, I suppose. Yeah, well, that, that that makes perfect sense. Like, what about uh, what about your your media space? Like, what, what about YouTube? Like, where do you see that going? Because you see films, so you, you know, at the moment, especially now, we have a kind of media landscape where traditional visual media is going right. Well, we have Jamie Oliver. Uh, but he needs to film something on his phone in his kitchen because we can't <laughs> get a crew to him. Uh, yeah. We can't get, uh, we can't go outside, so we can't do any outside broadcasting. If it has to be studio, it has to be far apart. Whereas, you know, you get a lot of YouTubers and a lot of streamers who have got professional setups, who sound amazing, who know how to make a lot of content quickly, turn it around fast. Like, do you see a, a, an even bigger shift to YouTube style affairs, or do you still see that balance? I think, I think what I'm surprised about is that there's there's still a lack of YouTubers who've been able to cross over into the mainstream. Because like you just said, especially right now, I would have thought if I were Netflix or Channel 4, anyone, I would have found the sort of safest but most capable YouTubers out there with big followers and gone, right, we're commissioning you, done. You've got, you know, six episodes to string out on a Friday night. We'll put you on late just in case, you know, you're, you're crap. Uh, and create, because... 
there was don't get me wrong there were a lot of YouTubers out there who literally put a static camera in the corner of a room and video themselves gaming that's a very specific audience but there are some creators out there who are self-trained self-educated making incredible content by themselves um, and that can range from any topic and that's the beauty of YouTube is that you can really find any topic covered on there no matter how niche so I'm surprised that hasn't happened. Um, I think, you know, traditional media is still a bit scared or wary of the YouTuber uh, and their unpredictability and, and, you know, things like that. I think the platform's going to have to change as it has done over the last five years, even since I started. You know, I could, when I began, I made a video doing yoga with my 4C, not even joking. That's got 70,000 views. Me doing yoga with a 4C. I was 27 years old when I filmed that video. Anyway, uh, sorry, I digress. Um, uh, I could get away with that. If I did that now, my audience would eat me alive because the platform's moved on, but so has my channel. And I think credibility will take the forefront on YouTube over the years to come, whilst there'll still be an appetite for how to turn my kettle on. I think the stuff that people really want to go on and watch and brings people to the platform will be really strong, slick, solid and engaging content. When That could even be from brands. I don't think it's going to have to be individuals. But I think the sort of half-assed vlog with somebody on their iPhone running through the street just showing off their kind of crazy life, I think will slowly fade away. A bit like reality TV's had to step up its game um, from the, you know, the old Big Brother days. Uh, so that's what I from, expect. From Big Brother with teaching people how to self-isolate to Love Island. Yeah, well, literally. But, but also, if you look at the production of Love Island, okay, forget the concept. Mm. The production level is insane. Like okay. The music, the angles, it's clearly heavily produced. They've definitely got people in there telling them when to talk about what and the, everything about it's amazing. And then you go back and watch early Big Brother that we were all obsessed with. It's so basic. It's like, it's kind of perverted. It's, it's like creepy CCTV cameras just filming people eat beans. Um, so, yeah, that's what I, I'm hoping that YouTube continues to you know, promote credible content creators out there who are making really engaging content, not just, here's me painting my nails in my bedroom. <laughs> but, that, that is fair, <laughs> right. Um, before we wrap up, we have a set of questions we ask everybody. Quick fire, don't think about it, just spit words at my face okay, from two metres away, yeah. responsibly <laughs> distanced. I think further if I'm spitting at your face, but sure. <laughs> um, two wheels, three wheels, or four wheels? Four wheels. Auto or manual? Auto, because I can film easier. <laughs> uh, naturally aspirated or forced induction? Uh, naturally aspirated. Petrol, diesel, or electric? Petrol. Best road you've ever driven? Thermal Explorer Highway in New Zealand. That's cheating, because you have literally just driven the best roads of the world <laughs> over a year. Uh, yeah, that um, easy. And the final one, when you were a kid, what was your bedroom poster car? Uh, well, actually, it was a Formula One car, Michael Schumacher. I had about 17 posters of the guy all over my wall. So he was watching, he was watching over you? He was watching over him, guiding, guiding me guiding. To, drive a, to drive a Renault many years later. Many, many, many years later. But it's a good thing. Right, Sam, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, before we go, um, tell the people where they can see your stuff. Well, thank you for having me. And yes, if you are on any social media platform anywhere, just search Seen Through Glass and you shall find me. Hooray! So yeah, go go watch some stuff. His uh, his adventures around the world are are where they'll just fill you with rage. And I was watching it uh, this morning, just thinking, 
I want to do that. How can I do that? <laughs> and I realised there's no way I can afford to do that. But, uh, yeah, Sam, thank you so much for joining us. And I look forward to seeing more adventures from around the world and through glass. There we go. Absolutely. Hope to catch up with you soon. Cheers, mate. Sam Fane there with some pretty mega stories. I'm very, very jealous of his road trip around the world. Uh, it looked super epic. You must go and check him out. As he said, search Seen Through Glass. Just throw that into Google and you'll find all of his channels, all of his information. Really lovely bloke. Well worth watching. Now, next week we're going to have another exciting guest, but I won't tell you who because, well, that would be cheating, wouldn't it, really? Uh, but in the meanwhile, while you're waiting for the next edition of Talking Shop to come out, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, tell your mum, tell people you don't really like uh, to listen to it so more people can hear it and have a lovely time. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.